Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, and mine to lead me through the night. Made it known that today I would continue in the series, First Things, What Tops Your List. This is a third part in the series. I got a couple more to go, I think. And I invite you to take notes to make, uh, mark things down, the scriptures we share. There'll be plenty of them. First things, what tops your list. This is a series about establishing values and putting those values into practice. Really, Really, they're not values if they're not in practice. They're just statements that make us smile. They're really values when we put them into practice. The first message of the series, I presented this overall concept of first things from three festivals that the Lord required of the children of Israel annually. He said three things you really have to do. It's a feast of unleavened bread that was really a continuation of Passover. That's a representation of deliverance and remembrance. Every year, remember where you came from. Remember that I delivered you from bondage and torment in the land of Egypt. That's what the Lord said. I want you to remember that every year. That took place in about March or April. The second feast was called the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. And that feast was to recognize where we are, what we possess is because it was an inheritance provided by God. He has provided. He not only delivered, he has provided. And part of that celebration was to return a small portion of the first bit of harvest. When this would happen in May or June, they would bring an offering from the harvest before they even knew what was to come with the balance of the harvest. And then that happened in May or June. The third one would be the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Divine Blessing, where all of the crops throughout the season of farming, everything's been harvested, all the fields are now bare, everything's come into the barns, and the divine blessing and multiplication, look what the Lord has done, the celebration of that fact. So these feasts work in progression. They work in progression. And God expected his people to regularly engage in that cycle. Got to keep it in mind that he delivered us, he has given us inheritance, and we look forward to his continued and future blessing. Now, this series, First Things, we're emphasizing that middle feast, the first fruits, or what we've designated first things. Because in this new land, in the land of Canaan, the God-provided land, first fruits precedes the blessed in gathering. First fruits is faith first, faith forward. It's Here's the big element of that faith. We're releasing our immediate control. When we bring the first fruits offering, we're saying, I don't know how the rest of this is going to play out. 
but I trust you, God. I don't know how the rest of this is going to unfold, but I trust you, God. You brought us here. The land we have is yours. The reason things grow is because of you. I don't have it all detailed, but I'm releasing the control. And so he says that or we do that, we're trusting God for the future and what comes next. And when we share that first share, it's not just priority, it's also quality, the best portion. The second session, a couple of weeks ago, we applied that principle to our social practices. Let me, let me just reiterate, I'm taking some topics to apply this, but I'm not limiting this application to these topics. That middle feast is a reordering of our values in the kingdom of God. The reestablishing that God is first. He's delivered me. I expect divine blessing in the future, but in aspects of my life, he is first. And what that looks like in some various aspects, based on the increases in Christ Jesus' life, we've been talking about different aspects of applying this first fruit. We talked about social increase, our social development, our social growth. Jesus increased in favor with man. It's recorded in Luke 2, 52. Why does social growth matter? Because disciples need spiritual connections. We've got to have them. Not only do I need the connection, but other disciples need my social interest and investment. We're not here today just for ourselves. We are here today for one another. And furthermore, if I desire the end game divine blessings, you know what? Most people, I guess there are unique folks who say, you know what, I, I don't want to be loved. I don't want to be cared for. I don't want anybody interested in me, and I don't want to be interested in anybody else. I, I suppose perhaps that that individual exists. It saddened me just to speak that way. I would think that most humans, by study and research and the promise of God, what we really would like is some amazing relationships. We want to care for people, and we want people to care for us. And, and we want God-blessed relationships. But that end result, that end gathering, is a result of what we do in first fruits. We don't just get delivered into the kingdom of God in March or April and then skip forward into September, October. In the middle, there's this personal investment and engagement. We are engaged. We are to do some things. So we talked about that social business in the last session. And since that session, I, I ran across this quote I want to share with you. It's from a book I've been reading. In fact, I've since finished titled The Happiness Advantage. Uh, the Harvard University ran a longitudinal study, which means it went over a long time. Of 268 men from the time they entered college in the late 1930s, they studied these 268 men up until uh, recent times. And the psychologist, the professor who is in charge of the study for the past 40 years, he said this, there are 70 years of evidence that our relationships with other people matter and they matter more than anything else in the world. 
Adding to this, the author of The Happiness Advantage, Sean Acor, writes this, when we have a community of people we can count on, spouse, family, friends, colleagues, we multiply our emotional, intellectual, and physical resources. We bounce back from setbacks faster, we accomplish more, and we feel a greater sense of purpose. Sounds to me like the research has revealed what Scripture has long taught. We are a body of believers, and the hand is dependent on the arm, is dependent on the torso. There is a valid understanding and knowledge that we need one another. Our relationships are very important. For more on that, check the message from a couple of weeks ago. Today, I want to talk about the increase in our participation and our involvement and our prioritizing of God's provision. I want to, I want to talk about that is, and recognize this is our investment. God provides the inheritance, but we are to operate within it. Too often we see God as a magic genie. Well, you know, I saw what he did at the Red Sea, how he pushed back those waters. We went through on dry land and he saved us from the approaching army of the Egyptians. He brought us into this land and look, he's helped us have victory here in so many ways. It's all on God. I just look forward to the day that he brings me all the cool stuff. But in the interim is where you and I are involved. We return a portion to him as an acknowledgement that it came from him, but we're engaged, we're involved, we're operating. As it is in our social connections, God just doesn't give us the incredible connection of wonderful relationships. We're involved. We're involved. And the same is true when we think about further things from Luke 2.52. If you'll bring that scripture up, uh, let me show you here. I, I just think this first fruit encapsulates Christian development. Christian discipleship is humanity's ultimate development program. As a fellow human, look what happened in Jesus' life. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus increased. It seems to me that if he increased, it's fitting for us to increase. If he developed and grew, then it would be fitting for you and I to do the same. From that same book I mentioned earlier, an interesting university study. Researchers often at universities will pay students to be involved in their studies, and there's some hilarious things that take place. One of the things they did is they paid students, 27 of them, to play the video game Tetris for multiple hours for three days straight. All you're to do for hour upon hour upon hour upon hour for three full days is to play the video game Tetris. Anybody have Tetris on their phone here today? Yeah, there you go. It's a simple game. You got four kinds of shapes. They fall from the top of the screen. A player can rotate them until they come together. Before they hit the bottom, 
You get them all aligned in a row, they'll disappear before they hit the bottom. And that's what the object of the game is. For days, listen to this, after three days of that, hours and hours of playing Tetris, for days after the study, literally some of those participants could not stop dreaming about shapes falling from the sky. Others could not stop seeing shapes everywhere. One man spikes about going to the gym and running laps around the gym, and he's looking at the blocks and the shapes in the wall and wondering how he could turn them so they would fall and be at the bottom while he's running laps at the gym. Quite simply, they couldn't stop seeing their world as if it was made up of sequence of Tetris blocks. What happened there? Well, they've done research, and it stems from this normal physical process that repeated playing triggers in brains. They become stuck on something they've determined is called a cognitive afterimage. When we do things repeatedly, when we engage ourselves wholeheartedly, science has finally figured out some things in our brains where our brains create what's called these neural pathways. And, and thing, we get from point A to point B faster because these neurons have connected together when we train those things. All the things we do by habit are because our brains have formed these pathways. And that's not just a vision problem. These students who and participants who kept seeing things falling, all of that playing changed the wiring of their brain. Following studies, follow-up studies following that, that consistent play was creating these new connections that affected the way they viewed real-life situations. And that's the way our brains act. Here, and I quote, our brains very easily get stuck in patterns of viewing the world, some more beneficial than others. Our brains get stuck in patterns, some more beneficial than others. Now, you know what? I, I've searched the scriptures about our minds, about our thoughts, and the scripture is very candid about the power of our thoughts. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. It doesn't say that right people have right thoughts. It alludes that right thoughts precede righteous people. In Proverbs 15, 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. Sometimes we say, you know what, if it's this as long as I don't act out on certain things. Well, scripture seems to share otherwise. Look at Romans. It's also a New Testament thing. Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. To be carnally minded is death. If I remain in a carnal-minded setting, spiritual death is the ultimate outcome. It's the way it works. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Paul writes, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul was talking about the disciples in Corinth that I've trained you, I've taught you, I've helped you, I've developed you, I've helped you be this way. Stay true to Christ. But look at verse 3. Here's what he writes. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul goes all the way back to the initial sin, the initial transgression, the initial action contrary to Christ, to God. And he says, what happened was a serpent corrupted her mind. She was deceived in her thoughts. She was pure, right relationship, evening walks with the Creator. And yet, the serpent in his craftiness, affected her mind. And so likewise, Paul warns of the danger of allowing our minds to be deceived and corrupted and changed. He spoke to the Philippians on the subject as well. Philippians 3, verse 18, Many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I'm reminded of the oft-repeated phrase. I heard it decades ago. I found it uh, looking up and searching. It's credited to Stephen Covey and his seven habits. So a thought. Reap an action. Sow an action. Reap a habit. Sow a habit. Reap a character. Sow a character. Reap a destiny. Our thoughts are powerful. Our thinking, our minds are powerful because in the end, they dictate our destinies. Now, here's the thing I, I, I want us to really be aware of conscious of, recognize we need to address. Just because I've exited Egypt doesn't mean my thinking is good from here on out. Even people with good intentions, people close to Christ can think wrong things. Look at Matthew 16 and verse 21 in this a dialogue between Jesus and his disciple Peter. The Bible says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. In fact, Jesus tells them, I will be killed, but I will raise again on the third day. Verse 22, this just cracks me up. And Peter, uh, Jesus, can I have a minute? pulls him by the arm, takes him. You do the research, it, it appears that Peter was the oldest of the bunch, perhaps seven to ten years older than all the other disciples. He's the elder statesman. He's closer in age to Jesus. He he pats him on the back, takes let me have a word. 
he says to Jesus, rebuking him. None of us have ever done that, I'm sure. Rebuking him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus, in verse 23, turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're not thinking God thoughts right now, Peter. Peter's close to Jesus. He's one of the first disciples. He's one of the first humans to spend that close contact in the ministry of Christ Jesus. He's heard the most of the teachings, the closest of the teachings, and yet his humanity remains. There's a, there's a little bit of Egypt still in Peter, and his thinking hasn't been changed. And you know why you study God's Word? Peter's not alone. There are many times that good people thought wrong thoughts. Abraham lied to Abimelech because he thought Abimelech was going to kill him and take his wife. Abraham's son Isaac did the same thing, lied because he thought he would be killed when someone would take his wife. Hannah was praying inaudibly. No voice, no noise, just her lips moving. Eli thought Hannah was drunk. Joseph, well, he thought that Mary had been unfaithful. Jesus welcomed children to himself. His disciples thought, keep the kids away. Jesus' disciples thought, part of the reason Peter tried to rebuke him, they thought that Messiah's physical, political rule would happen immediately. They were wrong. When an angel rescued Peter from prison, he thought, well, this is a vision. It's not real. The religious man Saul thought he was doing good by imprisoning Christians, real people, sincere people, godly people, yet their thoughts were wrong. Their minds were not yet transformed. They, they knew about deliverance. They celebrated unleavened bread. They were looked forward to divine blessings, yet still there was work to do in the first things of their thoughts in that, that middle scene. Well, how about we just be candid with one another today? It's not always easy to change our minds, is it? which is not necessarily a bad thing. James talked about people who follow every doctrine that comes along as being double-minded and unstable. So it's not bad to be discerning, to be conscientious, to be thoughtful, and yet we have to be willing to change our minds, and that's not always easy. One of the reasons is those neural pathways, those, those ruts that our habits run into our mind. History causes selective hearing and understanding. I ran into this recently. A man approached me. He was a little upset with me and surprised. He said, I surprised him with some information. There's nobody in this church, another thing. But I reminded that man, you know, the information that you believe is a surprise, I presented months ago in writing to a committee in a meeting where you attended. He'd receive the printed information it would, in his hands. Still, that information was surprisingly new to him. Why? Because the plans were different 
than what had been done historically. And so I didn't communicate well enough. And very likely he heard one word, attached his meaning to it, and forgot everything else that I said. Because it's easy to assume the old ways. Old habits are tough to break. Old thoughts stay ingrained. When we got days of playing Tetris, it creates a brain rewiring. Our brains get stuck in patterns of viewing the world. Other times, can we be this, this honest, this candid? We're just too proud to admit we're wrong. And you know, rather than doing and being what's right, we want to defend that I am right. huh? Instead of considering what really is the truth, that can get in the way. In other cases, you know, well, I'm not having a problem right now, so I don't want to think about changing. It's working for me, so leave me alone, right? Changing our minds isn't always easy, but the Bible is very clear. And when it comes to mental wisdom increase and mental development, knowledge and understanding, there's got to be a, a first fruit season. There's got to be the importance of our thinking and to change our thinking to align with God. In 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's an expectancy of thoughtful mental development. Second Corinthians 10, look here, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Sometimes we feel like we're only in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle, but there is a battle for our thinking that is taking place, and the, the Scripture reminds us of that. Here and then also in Ephesians, let me just take a moment to, to say the point over again. So you got Corinthians. Paul's talking to Corinthians. He's talking to the Ephesians. These people have already been delivered from Egypt. They made a mental decision. I'm turning away from the way I used to live. I used to follow mere humanity. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ now. They have been baptized in the name of Jesus to wash away all the mistakes and the, the silly things, both intentional and accidental, they did in their lives. All these people reading this in this body of believers, filled with the Spirit of the Lord, empowered, looking forward to the ingathering of Christ's divine blessings in the future. But now they're in the middle. And that's who Paul's writing to. Look what he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off 
concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, in those short passages, we find references to understanding and thoughts and arguments and knowledge and mind and ignorance and learned and being taught. All of those references point right here to the, the space between our ears. Carnal minds, ordinary human thinking that's not surrendered to the law of God. Egyptian thought and mindset is not sufficient for Canaan land living. And there are times, we must admit, it's challenging to change our minds. But if I'm going to succeed in following Jesus Christ, I've got to allow the first fruits to develop in my mind how to be what he wants me to be. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. You, you're talking about first things. We've been focused on the feast. How does all of this stuff connect to that? You know, learning his ways precedes living faith daily. Let me, let me take you to the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. You know, when I, I first just think about love, I don't think about love in the mind. Loving Him with all your heart, with all your soul, that seems to be emotional and relational and social and and that's the easiest one to grasp. But to love God with all my mind? What's that all about? How do I love the Lord with all my mind? Well, the Bible reveals that love is a choice. Love is an action, biblical love. It's, it's more than an emotion. And any here that have enjoyed lasting relationships, we know this to be true. I, I proposed to my sweet wife because as a young adult, there were feelings of love. But over the years, we each continually make loving choices and we choose loving actions in order to maintain those loving feelings. Love's a lot more than emotion. So I, I, I ask this question, and just think for a minute, ponder, write down a few questions. What, what, what choices, what actions in my life reflect loving God with my mind? What am I doing that reflects that? How am I accomplishing to love God with my mind? And over the past week, if we consider our thought lives, the things that dominated our thinking, the things that went into and came out of our minds, do they reflect Loving God? And to what degree? And my mental habits, are they increasing my God awareness and my God appreciation? I, I, am I practicing first things in my thought life? How do I love God with quality thinking and priority thinking? 
What, what are my commitments every week, every day to a renewed mind in Christ? I have to ask myself this. Perhaps you've done the same. I, when am I most mentally alert and focused and at my sharpest? When am I at my best mentally? Some of you young people are sharp all day long. Get up to my age, it doesn't work that way anymore. I'm sharp at certain times of the day and I fade at other times of the day. Well, I think about when I'm sharpest, when I'm on my best mental game. How much of that time am I offering to Christ? Am I giving Him a portion of my best, of my quality and my thought life to Christ Jesus? With those questions in mind, we might ask, you know, what, what can I do to get to the place where I've got, I've got good, solid, positive responses to questions like that? What could I be doing? What might I do to make that transition? Because candidly, it's a period of time. It's May and June. The feast ends in April, March and April. You got May, June, July, August before September and October hit. You follow me with the feast? There's a progression of making things first and bringing them to the forefront. Here's something we can do. We can pray for evaluation and direction. We can pray for spirit revelation of our thoughts. Look at Psalm 26.2. Psalm 26.2, the psalmist shares, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind. Try my mind. That's inviting a God evaluation. Lord, is this thinking right in your eyes? Look at John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, Jesus speaking, talking about the Holy Spirit to indwell humanity, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. First of all, if I've not been filled with the Spirit, I need to receive that heavenly gift into my life. And having received it, I need to look to it. I need to depend on it. I need to trust in it. Welcoming the Spirit's direction, permitting the guidance that is promised. I will challenge us again in our prayers beyond praying for healing when I need it, beyond praying for solving my problems when I'm in a bind, beyond praying, give me more strength, Lord, more spiritual inspiration. Lord, will you jack up the goosebumps a bit? All valid prayers. But beyond praying that, saying, Lord, here's my thoughts. Give me an evaluation. Help me to see what's good and not good, what's pleasing and not good. Lord, here's my thoughts. Guide me. According to first fruits in that principle, this would be our priority. This would be the starting point. Can I share with us? Too often we use Egyptian thinking and we just talk to God after we've screwed things up. But first fruits, when the decision becomes necessary, when the situation presents itself, when I recognize this, this needs to have some God input. Before I decide, before down, I go down a line of thinking, before I go down a process, before I make declarations to my family, I, I take that 
thought process to God and I say, Lord, try my mind. Lord, I trust your spirit to lead and to guide me. Help me to see what you would have me to do. Welcoming that evaluation and guidance. Wise choices, godly thinking starts with first things kind of prayer. We can turn to the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and powerful, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Right here. Right, right here. Right here. Right here. I have a hard time reading the Bible. Listen to it. I have a hard time listening to the Bible. I'm sorry, but you'll never grow. Right here. Got to be in here. I love the way pastor and scholar Tim Keller writes about the Bible. He says, the Bible is the primary means by which God presents himself to us in such a way that we can know him and remain in a faithful relationship with him. If God is a source of life, then his word will give life. If God is wholly truthful, then the word cannot err. If God is glorious, the Bible is a treasure. And perhaps this is my favorite of his quotes on the scripture. Contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians reverse that. We allow the Bible to examine us looking for things that God can't accept. Disciples examine the Bible looking for things in us that God can't accept. That's what separates us in the land of Canaan from the land of Egypt. The things we meditate on, I'm just throwing it out there, the things that capture our understanding. Think about your week. Think about last week. Does God get priority and quality with our thought process? One of my joys, and there are many, but one of my joys in faith group discussions is as we're talking about a topic or bringing up a subject, happened again this week, and someone replies with, well, the Bible says. Oh, I love that. We turn to the word first. Because it discerns our thoughts, it challenges our thoughts, it provokes our minds, it transforms our thinking into his thinking. And one final point, turn to somebody and say, I think he's going to close. What about the other human knowledge in our lives? We increase in wisdom. What about that other human knowledge that we glean that's not biblical knowledge? Can we practice first things in those areas? And if so, how might that look? Let me just offer a few suggestions and you can prayerfully consider them. What about some intentional learning? What could I learn so that I could benefit the kingdom of God? And some of that we intentionally pursue and some of it we need to look and see what do I already know and how can that be helpful? Years ago when Elder Pastor Denny pastored in this area, 
He learned to fly an airplane while he was here in the United States of America. He learned to fly an airplane. Then he became a missionary to the Philippines. And he took what he learned to share the gospel of Christ in another place. You all with me? That's human knowledge being offered first fruits to the kingdom of God. I know a man who has significant knowledge in internet security and processes. He's wicked brilliant. He has used that knowledge to deliver and protect the gospel teaching to people in repressive countries around the world. First fruits, you all with me? He makes a living at that, but how can I bless the kingdom of God with that? Or how about our own Christian? He's here today. He recognized some knowledge he had, audio production, social media, along with his interest in podcasts. And so he adds to that knowledge with more learning to produce what we have now, a living faith podcast, already reaching people in 20 states and six foreign countries. How does that happen? It happens when somebody says, I, I've been developing in my mind. I've been learning some things. I've been understanding some things. And it blesses me. It blesses my family. It blesses things around me. What can I do to invest first fruit to the kingdom of God? You all with me? What mental capacities has the Lord blessed us with that we could return to Him a portion, a first portion back to Him? What what additional learning have we gained for other reasons? It might be an investment in the kingdom of God. We get some ongoing job training in our careers and professions. How could that bless the work of God? How could we return a portion of our business acumen to the kingdom of God? Of all that I've learned just as a human being in the last two to five years, have I thought about ways that I can give a portion of that first fruits, first things to honor the kingdom of God? recognizing, look what he's done for me. I want to honor him with what he's given to me. Stand with me. I want you to see a couple scriptures and then we're going to pray. Here's why we practice first fruits. It, number one, the Lord said you should. The Lord said, you need to remember why you came out of Egypt and how. You need to practice first fruits, harvest, and then there is an end gathering. It's down the road, it's at the end of the season, but there is going to be blessing. Here's what that end gathering looks like when it's divine and when it's of God. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace. That sounds pretty good to me. That's the end gathering, the blessing, the promise that we have. When I offer Him first fruits of my mind, when I mind is first developed to Him, there is perfect peace awaiting each of us. In First Chronicles 28, 9, As for you, my son Solomon, David talking, know the God of your father. Serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. 
If you seek him, he will be found by you. It talks about hearts in addition to minds, but in terms of our mental uh, uh, investment, our thought processes, we've got a promise. If we will give the Lord the first fruits of our minds, we will find him. We will know him. We will understand him. There's a promise that he will continue to do and develop. He's not hiding. He doesn't want to steer clear. There's not a barrier around him. He's not got a, a row of all the famous shrubs and hedges that we grow in the Northwest to keep people from seeing our homes or us. God doesn't operate that way. He's saying, if you'll look, I'm here. His address is readily written. His house is lit. There's easy, he's on Google and it's maintained and known that you can find his place. There's not a no trespassing sign. There's not a keep away. He's saying, you will find me if you'll, that is a promise that we have when we engage our minds and first fruits. There's understanding, there's divine understanding, divine blessing and perfect peace when we give ourselves to the things of God. Can you say amen? As we pray, I want you to ask the Lord not just to challenge you right now in your mind, but in the days ahead to help us to work through and to apply what this means in our lives, in our first fruit thought lives. Lord Jesus... You are awesome. You are wonderful. You are amazing. Lord, there is none like you. We thank you, Lord, so much for your goodness and your power and your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would minister in my mind and in my heart. Help me, O oh God, in evaluating my thinking. Some things, Lord, that are really just second nature to me. They're human habits. There's pathways that have been carved just by my upbringing and my experience. And Lord, I, I bring those to you. I offer those to you, Lord, just to evaluate them. When those thoughts need change, direct me, guide me, lead me. Help me see the place in your scripture. Let your spirit illuminate and guide me as you promised to do. And Lord, also, as you have also said, uh, empower, let your spirit empower as I understand, as I know. I want to trust the empowerment of your spirit to step in that direction, to overcome the habits that aren't pleasing and pursue those that are. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everybody say, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Appreciate you each and every one. Thank you for being here today. Next week, we'll have a guest minister with us in service, a friend of mine from a long, long time. His name's Tim Chesson. He pastors in Tennessee, and he'll be with us in service. I'm not the only one who knows him, evidently. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. Oh.